Hello, you are listening to The Piobot, a podcast created by the Lewis and Clark Pioneer Log to help you stay connected to the ideas, projects, events, and humans that make up Lewis and Clark College. This podcast is coming to you every other Friday at the same time as the Pioneer Log newspaper. If you want to find out more about what's going on on campus, be sure to pick up a hard copy of the Pioneer Log or check out our website, piolog.com, to read our articles online. I'm your host, Nagasi Brown. Happy Friday, everyone. It's October 4th, 2019. Coming up for you today, we have announcements of events and sports updates. Then we have some climate strike testimonies where we'll hear about the experiences of LC students at the Portland Climate Strike on September 20th. Then we'll have special guest Ben Gaskins, a political science professor here at LC, come and talk about the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. We have some really interesting articles in the pile log this week, including one about how LC came to acquire that magnificent love sculpture outside of Howard. Make sure to check it out. Hey y'all, before we get into announcements, I wanted to come on real quick and tell you about a new app created specifically for Lewis and Clark students. It's called The Bridge, and it's an app where you can see and post all of the events happening on campus. It'll be really useful for student and campus organizations and clubs to advertise events to the entire LC community. There is currently an open beta for the app available for download in the App Store and the Play Store. So you can download it and use the app and provide feedback to the student creators. The link to download the app is in the description of this episode. First up for announcements, we have upcoming College Outdoors trips. There are three great trips all being offered October 26th. The first is a hike along the Oregon coast to a rainforest to see sea lions. If you're less of a hiker and more of a scavenger, you can go mushroom picking on the Oregon coast. And if neither of those suit your fancy, there is a Columbian River Gorge waterfall hike. If all of these trips sound fun to you, do not fret. Each of these trips are happening three times throughout October and November, so you can attend them all. Sign up for all these trips begin today at the CO office in Templeton. Be sure to reserve a spot quick. These trips fill up fast. You can also sign up now for a Wilderness First Responders Certification course taking place in January either at LC or in Florida. The Campus Activities Board is holding a fall ball ticket giveaway on their Instagram. Go to cab underscore LC and check out their post to enter to win two free tickets to fall ball. On October 6th, CAB is hosting a Booksmart movie night in the council chambers for 1.34 p.m. Wait, what is Booksmart? It's like... I don't know. I've heard it described as, like, super bad, but with girls. Oh. I might actually go watch that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Maggie's Trivia Night is on October 17th from 8 to 9 p.m. Groups are five people max. $5 Fridays are happening at the Portland Art Museum. If you want to learn more about their current exhibit, check out the article in the art section of the Piolog by Tyler Short. Board Game Club gathers in the Troom every Friday, 7 p.m. On Tuesday, October 8th, actor Johnny Stallings will be performing Song of Myself by Walt Whitman in Stam. If you would like to participate in the race monologues during the Ray Warren Symposium, please consider attending a race monologues writing workshop. They happen every Tuesday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. in Tamarack, which is in Forest. Now on to sports. Our football team won their first game of the year against Whittier on September 21st, bringing their record up 1-1. Since our last episode, the women's soccer team won twice in conference against George Fox and Pacific. Their overall record now is 3-4-1, and their next home game is tomorrow, October 5th, at noon against Puget Sound. Join us tonight at 7 p.m. to see our women's volleyball team go head-to-head against Pacific Lutheran. Their record now is 7-6, 
Women's tennis had their first tournament of the season when they traveled to Walla Walla, Washington for the ITA Northwest Regional Championships. They had a successful tournament with Madeline Landerfeld, Caitlin Jones, and Rachel Rice winning their opening singles match before falling in the round of 16. Men's tennis also opened their season at the ITA Northwest Regional Championships. The most successful athlete for LC was Ramez Atia, who advanced to quarterfinals. The team followed up this performance with a win against Willamette 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 at home which brings the official team record to <laughs> which brings the official team record to 1-0. They defeated Willamette 8-0 in a resounding victory. Next up we have student testimonies from the climate strike which happened on September 20th. We decided that for this episode, we wanted to include testimonies from the global climate strike and the climate strike for immigrant justice that really highlight the intersectionality, ingenuity, urgency, complexity, and care that we feel is crucial to this movement. About a week before the strike, Ali and I started petitioning. We ended up getting 500 signatures in the first three days from talking to our classes, sitting outside of Howard, and tabling in front of the bone. We were asking the administration not to punish students, faculty, and staff who decided to strike and to publicly endorse the strike, which they didn't do, but the dean did send out an email to the entire community about the strike. We want people to know that the strike was a big day of action, but it doesn't end there. It's part of a bigger push of escalating pressure on our government and the fossil fuel industry to address the climate crisis with concrete action. And we should be thinking about how Lewis and Clark, a leading college and law school in sustainability, can play a role in that movement. At the strike, I was very moved by the Pacific Climate Warriors. Their speakers spoke about their ancestral lands and their homelands disappearing from the next generation. He talked about like his little baby cousin never getting to see their island, and it, I was really moved. I almost cried quite a few times. Something I was reflecting on afterwards was how the people who were watching the march on the news, whose cities maybe didn't have a march, if it motivated them or challenged them to see millions of people show up. I kept imagining how many bridges worth of people were at the march. There was easily 10 bridges worth of people, probably so much more. I was marching during the climate strike near the end of the bridge. I heard a lot of yelling. Then I see people my age being thrown around by cops. I saw someone right in front of me get smashed right into the ground. I saw police push past and grab a 17-year-old black boy and pull him past the police tape and pin to the ground. I joined a group creating a barricade to make sure the cops couldn't get back in again. At the beginning of the rally, as I was walking into the crowd, I saw Antifa members shouting at police, saying things like, These motherfuckers work for ICE. I just walked past, not wanting to get involved. During the march, Antifa was toward the front of the crowd among the youth activists. They were waving a very large flag with their logo on it and passing out masks, telling people in the crowd to conceal their identities. Then probably midway through the rally, one of the members gave a signal and all of the Antifa members filed out. I found out later that this group was the Youth Liberation Front, which is the youth-led branch of Antifa. This past Sunday, I helped organize a climate strike for immigrant justice. We were striking because we need legislative action now, because climate change is already wrecking people's lives and homes. The fact is that even if we can limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, Extreme weather events are going to increase drastically, especially in the global south. So South Asia, for example, will see five times as many heat waves by 2050 as it is right now. In the order in which they spoke, we'd like to thank Katie Crocker, Ali McDonald, Ethan Kellner, Anna Bricknelly, Riley Hanna, 
and Arunima Jamwal for sharing their experiences. Next up, we have poli-sci major Jacob Muscarella interviewing poli-sci professor Ben Gaskins on the impeachment inquiry. So this is a pretty historic moment that we are even seriously discussing impeachment. That doesn't happen very often. No, it's actually only happened twice that the House of Representatives has voted on and, and passed articles of impeachment on a sitting president. If the House does move forward with articles of impeachment, this will be only the third time that a president has been impeached. And so from that perspective, it really is a historical moment. A lot of people don't really follow the news super closely. So for those people, what's been going on recently that got us to where we are now? Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House have been discussing impeachment. It has been part of, or at least in the background of, the investigations that they've been doing into the president this entire summer. But it didn't seem to be progressing as fast as some progressive activists and and hardcore Democrats really want to see happen. And on July 25th, the President of the United States places a phone call to the president of Ukraine. And this is intended to be a congratulatory phone call, a pretty standard run-of-the-mill head of state phone call congratulating the president of Ukraine on winning election. Well, during that phone call, President Trump repeatedly asks, some would say pressures, or more subtly uh, pressures the president of Ukraine, to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, who was on the board of one of the largest gas companies in Ukraine, pulling in something like $50,000 a month for his uh, services on the board, despite the fact that Hunter Biden had no real uh, qualifications beyond being the son of the current vice president. And so the theory goes that Vice President Joe Biden put pressure on Ukraine to fire the prosecutor who was responsible for looking into claims of misconduct on behalf of the gas company and specifically Hunter Biden. Now, that narrative has been shown to be not entirely accurate for a number of reasons. For one, this was not Joe Biden's decision unilaterally to go after the prosecutor. The whole Obama administration wanted to have this prosecutor fired. That prosecutor was not even looking into the gas company and Hunter Biden at the time. And the EU and other countries were also wanting this prosecutor gone for corruption. And there's not any evidence that the prosecutor was going after Hunter Biden directly. That being said, that narrative, that you know, theory, has really taken hold in the White House and captured the mind of Donald Trump. And so President Trump wanted Ukraine to really investigate this, arguably, from one perspective, to root out corruption. On the other perspective, it really seemed to be about trying to find damaging information on the most likely Democratic nominee, and also the nominee that, according to polling at the time, stood the best shot of beating President Trump in a general election matchup. And so, regardless of the veracity of the underlying claim, the fact that President Trump asked for, in his words, and what he's released, asked the President of Ukraine to do us a favor, to do him a favor, by looking into the role of Joe and Hunter Biden in Ukraine, that either direct quid pro quo 
we will withhold military aid that you desperately need to protect yourselves against Russian aggression in exchange for doing our dirty work on Joe Biden. That is the quid pro quo that is at the heart of this investigation. So last week with Nancy Pelosi coming out in support of an impeachment inquiry, what happens next? What's the process that comes next in the House? And how does that get more towards an impeachment trial? Right. So Nancy Pelosi has been kind of dragging her feet on this. And so many people on the left of the Democratic caucus have been pushing for impeachment going back to January of 2017, but really since the Mueller report came out, saying that there's enough there to really go after the president for obstruction of justice, for, for other related issues with Russia. And she's been kind of holding that back a little bit and frustrating some of her more liberal colleagues in the process. But right now, she has effectively bent to the pressure within her caucus and said that this issue with Ukraine is a, a different thing altogether, that it finally demands investigation and ultimately leading to impeachment. And so while she has supported the investigations up to this point on whether it's you know campaign finance violations with the president on in paying off Stormy Daniels or obstruction of justice or his tax returns or so many other things, she was unwilling to make that claim until last week, where she said that the investigations going forward are all going to be framed in terms of drawing up articles of impeachment. And so it's not completely clear the way that this is going to go. I think ultimately she is wanting the House Judiciary Committee to take the, the lead on this, um, but other committees are wanting to have their say as well. So what happens next is the committees that Nancy Pelosi has mentioned will continue their work on investigating the president, on issuing subpoenas, on calling witnesses, trying to uncover more evidence to support the whistleblower's complaint, and perhaps uncover other elements to uh, President Trump's conduct that we don't even know right now. And that process could take weeks, most likely it's going to take months, especially since the White House and the cabinet departments don't seem to be in any hurry to comply with the House's subpoenas. Just today, we had Secretary of State Pompeo say that he was going to not appear before House committees. He's not going to allow his subordinates to appear before House committees, calling the Democrats bullies, basically. And so if the White House and the executive branch is going to fight the process every step of the way, it is probably going to drag out the process by which the House is trying to build a case and find out enough evidence to support articles of impeachment. The goal, as far as I understand from what I have heard, is for the House to draw up articles of impeachment by the end of the year. Whether or not that happens, of course, remains to be seen and depends on a number of factors. But if they are able to put together one clear, coherent narrative, here's what has happened, here are the laws that have been violated or the abuses of power that we can document. Because again, high crimes and misdemeanors, which is what the Constitution has as the bar for impeachment, doesn't necessarily mean or require actual federal crimes to have been committed. High crimes and misdemeanors are whatever the House says it is. So if the House, through all their investigations, can find enough evidence that high crimes and misdemeanors have been likely committed, they will draw up articles of impeachment and they will vote on them. And this is just a simple majority vote, which means the Democrats don't have to get any Republicans on board in order to impeach the president. 
And so if a majority of the House, the 218 members of the House, vote in favor of articles of impeachment, those articles then go to the Senate for the Senate to hold a trial and ultimately vote whether or not to remove the president. And that process requires a two-thirds majority in the Senate to remove the president, which is a much higher standard, especially considering that the Republicans have the majority in the Senate. And so there would really have to be, I think, unambiguous criminal activity or something that is so politically damaging, so corrupt, that it is no longer politically viable to support the president, even among the Republican base. So speaking about the public, if you went back maybe three or four weeks ago, you would see uh, public opinion towards impeachment was pretty unfavorable, the majority of Americans being against impeaching and removing President Trump. Um, how have you seen that opinion shifting over the last week, and do you think that has any impact on what happens next? Yeah, so this is definitely an issue where a lot of Americans are not necessarily tuned in to what's going on in D.C. Most Americans are not worried about or thinking about our policy towards Ukraine. They may not have heard about what Joe and Hunter Biden may have done in Ukraine. So public opinion so far, as you mentioned, has been pretty tepid towards impeachment of Donald Trump. And it's only about a third or so of the country that supported impeachment. Well, what has changed since then, the most important thing is the stance of political elites, specifically the Democratic leadership on impeachment. A lot of Americans, independents but especially Democrats, are following the cues of their party, following the cues of their elites. And if they hear from Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats that the evidence for impeachment isn't quite strong enough yet, we're going to continue to investigate, we're not sure if there's anything you know impeachable there, many Americans will say, okay, I, I don't need to support impeachment right now. We'll, we'll wait and see because if the leadership isn't pushing it, why should I push it either? And so the moment, effectively, that that changes where Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats say, okay, we've turned a corner. We're looking to impeach the president. It is for these new, clear acts with evidence for it. That's when people's attention start to get peaked a little bit. They see that this is not just a continuation of previous investigations, but this is somehow new. Another thing that I can't, I can't overestimate is that the whole Ukraine issue is something that happened a little bit behind closed doors. One of the unique things of President Trump is that whenever he does things that would be scandalous to another administration, often he'll just tweet about it mm -hmm. or he'll say it in an interview. When he fired James Comey, the director of the FBI, he said in a national televised interview that he did it because of the Russia investigation, which if he had said this behind closed doors and a whistleblower or someone leaked this to the press, would be hugely scandalous and damaging as an obstruction of justice. But because he just says it, the impact is somewhat muted. So I think one of the things with the Ukraine scandal is that this was done behind closed doors. It was something that we didn't know much about until the whistleblower, whoever they may be, came forward with the complaint. And it is that complaint, it is the perhaps attempted cover-up that makes this seem more damaging and more damning to the president. And so all of these things put together, the nature of the scandal, the newness of it, the relatively easy way to grasp the scandal. I think most people understand a quid pro quo, coupled with really I think there's just an exhaustion for the constant drama coming out of the White House that has turned public opinion not decisively, 
it's still pretty close to a 50-50 split. Maybe, you know, depending on the poll, uh, you know, 55-45 split in favor of impeachment. But we have seen public opinion really dramatically change and really support for impeachment has gone up by almost 20 points, which is a really uh, huge jump. So one last question before I let you go. What is it like to study and teach political science in a time like today, whether it's just Trump's administration as a whole or specifically impeachment being discussed? Well, whenever I tell someone that I study political science, I almost invariably get the comment, well, it's a really interesting time to study political science, isn't it, or American politics? And the answer is, yeah, of course. That, of course, that being said, it's always an interesting time to study politics. That's you know, why I've gotten into this to begin with. But I think your question is apt in that this really is, in so many ways, an unprecedented presidency and an unprecedented time within that presidency. Donald Trump for better or for worse, depending on you know how you see him, is like no other president we have ever had. The way that he talks, the way that he uses Twitter and social media, the way that he you know engages in political rallies and divides people across the country. Um, so this truly is an unprecedented time, and it's fascinating to see things that would have been scandalous or unimaginable a handful of years ago now being the new normal and the degree to which the two political parties have entrenched themselves so that Republicans who would never have seen themselves defending behavior like what President Trump does on a daily basis or policies that the president puts forward are now in many cases full-throated defenders of the president. And that's been a little surprising to see the degree to which the party has really coalesced behind him. And related to that is we study institutions, we study political behavior and public opinion, but one of the things that has gotten short shrift often is political norms and just how reliant we are as a country on behavior and procedure that is not written in stone, that's not part of the Constitution. It's just about the standard operating procedure of how our politicians behave and act with each other. And a lot of those things are getting thrown out the window and rewritten at this current moment with some pretty, you know, profound and often scary consequences. And so trying to keep track of what are some of the permanent changes, what are likely to be some of the permanent changes, or whether or not the Trump presidency is kind of a historical anomaly, a blip on the radar that will then go back to normal when whoever is elected president. You know, that I think is is a big uh, bone of contention right now, something that is hotly debated. But it is absolutely true that we are in uncharted waters, regardless of impeachment and how this goes. This whole presidency has been unique to the highest degree. And so I often try to predict what is going to happen in the next week month, year. And I've tried to be very, very humble about those predictions because I never predicted that Trump would win the Republican nomination. I never predicted that he would win the presidency. And so I don't want to get too far out and say, well, he's not going to win in 2020 or impeachment is going to be politically damaging to him. There's so much that is unique about this whole situation that we really don't know what's going to happen next week, what more information is out there to learn. What is Trump going to do in response to the political and personal pressure he is feeling? And how will that play out? There are so many unknowns 
that I just have to buckle up and, and try to make sense of it as best we can as we go. Well, Ben, thank you for joining me today. Great. It was so <laughs> fun to be here. Thank you. And that, my friends, is the second episode complete of the Piopod. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to tell your friends about the Piopod and follow us on SoundCloud. If you have an idea for a segment, music you'd like to contribute to the pod, or if you want to get involved, email us at thepiopod at lclark.edu. Please also let us know if you have an event you'd like to plug. Our next episode comes out on October 18th. The Piopod was written, created, and edited by Mia Eichel. Special thanks to Brian Miller for helping edit this episode. Thanks to Andrew Nori, Hannah Mersbach, Annie Erickson, Jacob Muscarella, Ben Gaskins for their contributions to today's podcast. And a big shout out to Miles Saxty for music. His links are in the description of this episode. See you in two weeks.